Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with comedian, actress, author, and repeat off-camera guest, Jenny Slate. I'm really happy to have Jenny Slate back again. She's smart, funny, and charming, and she's refreshingly honest about her struggles as an artist and a human being. Every time I find myself in conversation with her, I feel inspired and joyful. She's just released a Netflix special called Stage Fright, which is part stand-up, part documentary, part confessional, and wholly original. She's also released a new memoir called Little Weirds, which is probably the most esoteric and private book to ever land on the New York Times bestseller list. Bottom line, Jenny is an unapologetically human artist, and she's at the height of her powers. Jenny had to do some soul-searching over the last few years. Divorce, the public spotlight, and emotional turmoil were inhibiting her creativity, and as she depicts in her memoir, she had to work through some of that gloop. Writing Little Weirds led to a maturity and self-assuredness that helped her reach not only new creative heights, but also to find peace and happiness within herself. She inhabits an interesting space between creating entertainment and soul-searching. As Jenny says, I don't think there will be a world in which I don't try to be funny and add levity to reality. But the most important thing for me as an artist, and the only constant is, openness until death. Jenny joins off-camera to talk about losing her creative spirit in the woods of New England, freaking out after she bombed the stage fright rehearsal, and the psychological and creative benefits of dressing monochromatically for a couple of weeks. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Sam. Thanks for coming back. You are a repeat guest, which yes. is a high honor, because we haven't had more than a handful come back. And you've always been, ever since you came on the first time, one of my favorite episodes, because oh. you're honest and you're funny and you're gregarious and, and open and... And and I know that you were probably going through a pretty hard time when you were here last time. Yeah. <laughs> which and now you're back because you've written not only a book about it, which yeah. is a New York Times bestseller. Totally which is. Which is exciting. And you've done a stand-up special about that time in your life. Mm-hmm. And, and those two kind of dovetail together into in, into their own art form, I think. And there's a lot of crossover between the book and the stand-up. So I wanted to talk about all that. Yeah. But, uh, but I'm just happy to have you back. I'm happy to be back here. I had such a nice time the last time. And it's, a, it's like a, such a classy thing. And a real interview. That's why I really like it. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I am sort of sitting here being like, what if this is the one time where, well, this is what always happens when something is important to me. uh, Or, like, I have very, very little stage fright for something like this, but still there in, like, sort of um, buzzing doubt. But it's like, what if this is the one time where my personality, like, isn't here? Right, I just said you were funny. I like performing. (laughs) (laughs) I like reading and writing. And then I fall asleep. Isn't that the thing? (laughs) We're like, I don't know what to do here. Should we wake her up? Yeah. Um, I like snack. (laughs) Snack. I think that is the fear, though, that it never quite goes away. Yeah. That this may be the time when you don't have it. That's one of the things at the center of my fear. Um... I never felt it before, like in my 20s or in my college years when I did the improv group at our college. Like, I just, not only did I have no fear, I was like, yeah, let's go. I was real, I had like so much appetite, which I think is phase one of becoming uh, whatever type of creative person or artist you're going to be, is that initial hatching of the shell. And just like, even though you're in the gloop, you're like, I am this creature. I'm like, I'm this creature for sure, once you hit the air, you know? Well, and for some reason, there's no stakes. No stakes. What do you think changed and gave you stakes? Is it success that creates stakes because then you have something to live up to? I think for me, if I could really be honest about it, um, I remember, like, I remember auditioning, and I'm sort of, I will say, I'm a little bit reluctant to speak about SNL because I somehow I'm always drawn into it, but that's also because it is sort of my um, inception, in, in induction into yeah. this career or whatever. It was the first time you sort of got national attention yeah, and, and it's a recognition. Huge, and like, it, yeah. Thing. It's, it's a huge. big thing for anyone. Anyone that gets on their, that show, it's a huge honor. Sure. Um, and remains that way. I feel that way. But I remember going for the audition 
and taking the subway up to 30 Rock and being like, this feels bad. Like, I'm very, very uncomfortable on this train. I feel like I'm about to take an exam. Really? And even though I would, like, study really hard in school and love the feeling of finishing the exam and being like, I, I knew everything on the test or whatever, or I like the essay that I wrote. Uh, there's the feeling when you're driving from home to school that's just like, I can't catch my breath. I don't feel well. And I remember feeling that and that, that there was pressure. But then being on SNL, and this is the part that sort of feels gross to say because it feels gossipy or salacious, but it is true for me that I was like, I felt that the way that that community worked, not the individual people, but the way we all behave the here, culture. reminded me of the cheap social rhythms of like seventh grade. Oh, so it tapped right into yeah. a super uncomfortable time in your childhood. Yeah, and I was just like, I had no self-respect. I was frightened all the time. I felt like a loser because I, I was like a chump because I was always trying to please and get attention and I didn't feel good about myself. And, um, and then I started getting stage fright because I saw the environment as predatory and in a way it was. What do you mean predatory? Like there's always a threat in the air. Which it's live television and, and that's sort of, probably everybody's scared. Yeah. When everybody's scared, you can probably just smell the fear. That's right, but I think there's also a sense, and I don't know, I mean, I have no idea how Lauren thinks about running that show, but there's always a sense that's like, you're not hot shit and make sure you don't think that. And of a real sense of like, if you embarrass yourself, you're really going to embarrass yourself. And not just like me saying fuck on air, but but socially. And like, if you read Rebecca Solnit and her writing on like what keeps misogyny alive, there's this sense that she describes of like um, a pack and you don't want to be the weakest in the herd. And if you show that, the herd doesn't want you in there anymore. But you're also always kind of trying to point to someone else as the weak one. And in a group of people that I experienced as very kind, there is also the sense that's like a sense of, um, I'm going to get this for myself. Survival of the fittest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it makes sense that that's where your stage fright would start because before that, you were doing something that brought you joy. And then you get in this environment, it's like, not only could I fail at this, but if I fail at this, maybe they won't let me do Do that thing anymore that I love. Yeah, in an extended way. And you know what I think about it now? This is a weird comparison to make, but in the hurricane that devastated Puerto Rico, there was a female politician, and she cried. She cried on air, and she was like, why aren't you sending us aid? Why aren't you helping us? We need help. We're dying. And Trump made fun of her. And I remember looking at that and thinking, um, I'm really tired of there not being a place for emotion in public spaces where there's like a system of power. I hate that the person at the top can't break because for me, that woman saying, hey, I'm a human and like we all are and where are you? Like, where are you? And it really hit me. Like, I I felt like that's the most appropriate response. You should see somebody crying. And And I felt that way in terms of at SNL, your emotions aren't appropriate, your pain isn't appropriate, even though we all know that we're living inside the hive of our childhood dreams. But it also includes being like, you're replaceable, anyone could take your spot, but you can't keep your spot unless you're extra special. So hold that like terrible duality and it's just your responsibility. And if you don't, if you can't cut it, like, sorry. I think you were tapping into this idea that very few people get to experience, which is terrifying, which is when you get one of these coveted jobs that is so desirable and it comes with being with the most creative people and meeting the most interesting people that you've always looked up to, the fear of losing that or the wondering how you got there in the first place can make you crazy. Totally crazy. And you know what? That's I find that I often compare my... Um, artistic pursuits to my pursuits in love and romance, but the fear of the loss and the fear of like, are they going to regret that they picked me once they see how I fare under stress or just under the um, normal atmosphere of reality? You know, like, is it or are they um, going to be 
um, loving enough to make a long-term commitment on who I am. And that is a very, very hard um, fear to have, but I think that's what it feels like. And I also think, you know, for SNL, there's this thing that's like, you're going to be there for seven years, and then if you're lucky, you can have a career after that. But many people are, like, broken after it. Yeah. You know, and that was the biggest thing that scared me when I signed that contract. I was like, seven years? You know, like... I signed my contract for the 2009-10 season. And I remember two years ago, or three years ago, at like 35, 34, being like, oh my God, I would have just finished. Right. You know, like right. that's, I would have met, like, the majority of the important things in my adult life happened in that time where my, you know, phantom limb or invisible contract was still ticking out the time, like when I was actually free. That I, life thank was- Thank God that only went one season. Yeah, for sure. And and this is a good way to talk about the book because I feel like the book is, in a lot of ways, your, like, coming out the other side of that, the maturity, not only in your own personal and interpersonal relationships, but in in your work as well. Yeah. And I think this book, which is called Little Weirds, it documents, you know, the very, very lowest depths that you had to go to to meet yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what it is is almost we're, we're getting sort of into your own inner dialogue to yourself when we read this book. Yeah. And I think when you, when you come up with a title for any original work, it's hard. So I was curious when you landed on that, why it spoke to you and, and why you titled the book that. I was sort of reluctant to title it that because there is the inclination to simplify me by like perceiving me as twee which really bums me out because I don't think of myself that way, even though I know I'm, I am bubbly and all of this stuff. But, um, you know, the, the word little is in there and then the word weirds. And it's like I have a stand-up joke about how people who are like, I'm weird, I'm just like weird, are usually actually the most basic ones that you'll ever meet. The weird like, ones never know they A weirdo weird. doesn't know, which also <laughs> leads into an impression of what a true weirdo is like and that they say things like, you know, I can only come when I stare right into the sun. And you're like, that's weird. That's actually not normal. Like, you don't know that that's not normal. Right. <laughs> like, most people don't um, orgasm that way by staring into the blinding, um, unhealthy light of the sun. But, yeah, like, it's not meant to be like, this is the weirdest book I'll ever read. I'm weird, you know? No, I, and I think when you sit down to write a book like this, you probably have no idea what effect it's going to have on you long term. But I would imagine you probably had to examine some dark corners of your psyche or your past that you probably were happy leaving mysterious a little bit. And, and I was curious what you sort of learned about yourself writing it by, by having to sort of examine patterns and seeing it put together and yeah. seeing how many times certain themes reoccurred. I would say that in terms of my psyche, I really exist in like pretty rich shadowy glades and that I feel like a animal plunked down in there and I'm not able to avoid. So it's really a question of like, how long do you want to live as an animal in the dark glade with all of those rules around and all those scary little creatures that are inside? And and what do you want to do to start to be able to like lift a leaf, see what's under there and not just be paralyzed in the center of, um, of an interior space that is um, really disrupted really filled with pain and um, and has no agreement with each other. And so I think the decision that I had to make is like, are you going to call out what's up? So I'm able to look back at that time of like heightened panic, um, really like a lot of inability to deal, uh, avoidance uh, with like, just I just became interested in it. Because, as my dad says, to be in stasis is emergency. And part of the thing that I'm trying to do is to emerge from the dark glade and not be like, we're never talking about that again. Right. But to be like, the reason why I'm like so blown away by being alive right now is because part of me is that, um, turns out, like rather elegant survivor of that um, explosive and, like, dismantled time. When you say elegant 
survivor of explosive and dismantled time. Um, do you think that time starts in middle school or do you think it, it starts with your divorce or like, like I, I know the concentrated areas post-divorce trying yeah. to figure things out, but it seems like that was also, you know, a, a lot of, a, you say in the book that, that a lot of the ways you treated yourself were the way you were treated as a kid and yeah. you sort of subconsciously took on that definition of yourself and, and decided to treat yourself poorly that way and you were bullied in school. And, and, and so I was curious when you say that time, it's really quite a large span of time, right? Yeah, I mean, it all begins in the past and it's all tied to the past. And eventually you get enough into your adulthood or your maturity and hopefully have enough will to not just live but thrive that um, it's like making loops back, you know, but eventually um, you don't get yanked back into the past every time something triggers something. Involuntarily. Yeah, and that I think I lived um, involuntarily or unintentionally for, for quite a while, um, and now, and I reached a breaking point. I think I reached a point where I was like, I'm making a lot of decisions because of an array of pains and and like dislikes that presented themselves in the past. And I'm acting like those are my only choices because the echoes of trauma are so loud, but they're not. And I have to find a way to like clear the air and make it quiet. Um, but I don't think it's like I got divorced and then I got fucked up. Right. It's more, I've been this specific per person forever. And then a few events happened that at once broke me to pieces and shed, like, a very, um, I don't know, a very, like, unapologetic light on almost everything. And then it was my choice to either look or just, like, shut my eyes and stand still. And was the process of writing the book as much as the process of going to therapy or, or like, you know what I mean? Was, was the book as much for you as it was for an audience? I think it was completely for me. Um... I started to notice how I was writing, just like in my journal, and also that I really enjoyed, now not so, I don't tweet anymore, but there was a time when I enjoyed tweeting like weird, just internal little promises to myself that were sweet out into the world. And it was a way of saying, I'm nice to myself, so like, I'm good. I kept wanting to like send these messages out that were like, I care about myself. I, I want to be a good person in this community. Uh, please don't encounter me the way that you, the society at large tends to encounter visible, powerful women. Please don't try to tear me down. There's a better option. So it was like kind of self-protection. Yeah. But I loved looking back into my tweets and thinking like, what a, I'm into myself. <laughs> I'm like into that, I did that, I like that. I like that writing. And I just started to expand that um, as a way of telling myself, like, you're not just this person now who can't think of anything, who's afraid of everything. You were that then, and you can be that now if you just start to write down a picture of yourself. So did you get to the point where your creative spirit was sort of squashed? Yeah, you I did. did. Yeah, and, like, I think there's no scarier time than... Like, I remember riding in a car and looking out a window and seeing all of these pine trees and being like, damn, like, there used to be a time when I would just look at nature and not be able to get the thoughts down. You know, like, I just would, everything would be firing. I'd be so stimulated. Right. And now I'm just sitting here and I'm, I feel so separate and I have this weird thought like the trees don't like me <laughs> and, um, and my thoughts are filled with really cheap worries. Like, like what? Like, um, you know, strange, jealous thoughts. You know, if, if I were like in a romantic relationship, like feelings that come with not believing in yourself and really, really needing someone else to declare that I am the primary person in their life. Like, I think, I think when you're, you don't have self-love and your identity is, like, pretty trashy to, to you, yeah. to oneself, that it's very easy to slip into, like, a primacy battle for someone else's affection. Like, do you love me the most? Because there's, there's no growth inside. Yeah. 
But I don't know if that makes any sense. But. No, it, does, it makes complete sense. And I, and I think that the only way to get back to that place where you're looking at the trees and you can't get it out fast enough yeah. is you do. You have to sort of like start a love affair with yourself again. And you have yeah. to like figure out a process for that. And it seems like the book was that process in a way. It was. I mean, I really didn't know that it would be. And I wrote most of this book in October of 2018. Okay. Because I was totally alone, I had, first of all, zero romantic prospects. That's a big theme in the book. Yeah. This idea that that you wanted love so bad that you never even examined your partner to see if they were kind to you or or had your best interest in mind. Yeah. And that you wanted to force intimacy. And that was a very sad part of the book to me. Yeah, it was sad to me too. And I think... Um, there have been times when I have not been understanding towards myself or not been gentle enough and have said, it doesn't matter if you have found a cool person because you're so frightened of being abandoned that you will tear the house down just to prove that it can fall apart. Right. Yeah, I really felt that doubt that, uh, that maybe I'm just not lovable in a sustainable way because I'm too frightened and too much has happened to hurt my feelings, and, and the fright will remain. But, um, but I will say, I, if I hadn't examined that yeah. and realized that those strokes are really broad, actually, and they're very unkind, yeah. and that they are there because truly, like, someone else said that to me, um, and I internalized it, uh, that I, I could, if I hadn't looked at it, it wouldn't seem so actually bizarre to me in the light of day. Isn't that funny? I, I do feel like there are certain things that stick in our memory that people tell us. Yeah. And those become truth to us. And I've had that experience too, where it's taken me years to, to say, wait a minute, what that person didn't know, that person... Like, yeah, they didn't get it. Yeah. They just didn't get it or, I mean, that, those statements... You know, like you're like you're just you're just always going to ruin everything. You're crazy. Whatever your brain is broken. Like whatever they are, they're like the they're like the light that blinked before a bomb went off. You know, and like you'll always remember that moment of being like, "What's that light?" <gasps> you know, it's like in every movie where they hear the beep and they're like, "Wait, wait, wait!" And there's that moment of terrible silence before the blast. Right. That's what that's like, and that's why the trauma is there because you were not prepared for the complete um, explosion that was going to tear down your world. And I say it in my special too, it's like I got to this point where I was like, I don't really believe this, but I'm just gonna say, I'm gonna be everyone's weird aunt, and I'm like gonna kind of become Right, you talked like, about sort like, of celibate, but highly or masturbatory or whatever, yeah. and just yeah. like, I don't wanna deal with this anymore. And part of that also is, to be very real, not wanting to deal with um, the new sort of rash of men who are fake Me Too allies, and they know that's a sexy look, and right. not wanting to have to deal with um, being disappointed by the hetero scene, you know, and uh, just being like, I guess I'm just not, this is not meant for now because I can't make these compromises. I'm not meeting anyone cool. But really, that. That's a pessimistic point of view, and it's funny. Like, oh, I don't want to be 37 and, like, thinking about how my wrinkles are coming in or something. Like, I don't give a shit about that examination. Let me be 60. You know, like, I just don't want to deal with it because it's actually not my point of view that gives a shit about whether or not, like, my butt's falling down. But it's, it's the world, and I hear its voice, and I just, I'm just like, let me be 80. Let me be 80 with a long white braid and, like, a ton of chickens and an old husband, and let me be 80. But that's not what I really want. I just want the new way to be here. And uh, so you have to make it. You have to just make it for yourself. And that's, like, why I wrote this book, because I look back onto the book now, and sometimes it instructs me. It sounds like you gave yourself the permission to change the beliefs you used to have about yourself, you know? Yes, and like, there is no one catastrophe that is gonna set you on a course that you can't get off of. That's just not how we work now. Right, to not give in to the initial anxiety of, oh, remember that? Like, 
I feel that way sometimes. Like I'm going along and I'm okay, and then I remember something or, yeah. or a thought comes in, and it's hard not to react to that thought. And yeah. in the middle of anxiety, something can feel logical. Yeah. Oh. And then oh, you start I'm, making. Yes. <laughs> like yes, yes. I ha- well, my anxiety is absolutely horrible. So is everyone's, but but mine's really mean. Um, and it works with you know, like it just like reduces my options. I got the sense that you realized that, and this probably feeds into your anxiety, that your traumas were more echoes of past things than they are anything in the present. Yeah, I just don't want to feel anymore like I'm just at the mercy of my chemical anxiety. That sucks. And there are things you can do for that. And, um, you know, part of writing this book was, was figuring out what that is. But but the weirdest thing I think for me is that I wrote this book and it was like, all right, I'm just taking off. I'm gonna zoom into outer space now because clearly what is what is normal and traditional and what I would like is not available to someone like me, which is silly. But that's what I thought. And then after this bit of self-examination, the most like cliche thing happened, which was that I was actually able to meet a man that I could connect to right. and be myself around. Right. And not like I do think that um, for a while I kept testing, you know, not by doing anything bad, but just feeling like, I don't know, am I crazy? Like, is my, is my fear of being mistreated or um, having a partner who isn't loyal to me, like, um, are, are those going to happen? And then having a partner who's like, oh, yeah, totally normal to feel that way. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm, that's not me. So what you're saying is everyone who wants a fulfilling, healthy relationship should just write a book? For just freak out, write a book. Move home. <laughs> and I did dress monochromatically. I was diligent about it. What did the monochromatic dressing have to do with, with the process of, of examining yourself? It's just like um, streamlining and making a rule so that you're, you can change internally as much as you want throughout the day. But one thing that I used to do was, like, my emotional state would just, like, lurch and shift and change, and I would feel different, and I would put a new outfit on myself. That would be like, I feel like this now. Or, I feel so bad about myself, I better put this on. Oh, wow. And make myself feel better. And it was just like, no, just wear navy blue today, and if something changes for you, you have to deal with it internally. You're not allowed to give yourself treats. What a great metaphor for the idea that... We try to change our outsides and our environment when we don't feel the way we want to yeah, feel rather like you than looking Eliminate inside. that option. Yeah. You're not going to drink and you're not going to change your outfit, which are the two things that really, like, I can just be like, oh, I feel so, like, I just need something nice to happen to me. I'll have a pint of beer. Like, I don't have a drinking problem, but I, I give myself treats. And, and it's just like after a while, every, every little trick was worn out. So, so what do you do? Because I just didn't want to like skid to a stop face down in the middle of my life. So yeah. it was like, I'm just gonna wear navy blue today and when I feel like, oh, I feel different, you have to call a friend, you have to call your therapist, you have to read a book, but you can't go external in order to deal with what is relentlessly popping off in the internal space. Ah, that's kind of beautiful. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> no, it's true. It's, uh, I mean, I think it's that that's... also just like, is no, this crazy? I, is this whole conversation just totally crazy? I don't think so. Okay. It's the same reason someone puts a rubber band around their wrist. Yeah. You're just dressing monochromatically as a reminder that you're not going to use outside forces to deal with what's happening internally. Yeah. You're going to actually go in and visit it, which is a brave thing. I don't think that's crazy at all. No, and you know what else? When you look in the mirror and you're wearing all one color, you're just like, this looks pretty together. Like, it doesn't really look like anything's wrong. Like, when, you're, when you are like me and you're wearing, like, five different patterns of silk and you just, like, you know, you look like you're like, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. And sometimes I look at that and I'm, like, vibrant. And sometimes I look at that and I'm like, something's up. Yeah. You know, and I'm lucky that I think that the response to these two pieces of work, my special and my book, has been really positive and also really, like, curious and very personal. Like, most people respond personally, which is something that I, I feel lucky about. But I read, like, 
a couple people being like, is she okay? I feel worried about her. And I thought, oh my God, that never crossed my mind. You know, I feel like it's a sign of health to express yourself. And, um, and I'm doing art. I'm not like going out into the middle of the street and just like right. ripping my clothes off and taking a shit. You know, like I'm, I'm doing art. Someone's paying me to do it. That's the third part. That's the trilogy. <laughs> There's the book, the stand-up special. Yeah, and just the full-on bowel movement. Yes. Yeah. I'm just going to do that. That's in like 2020. A yeah. <laughs> Got to get it to 2020. <laughs> Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation to tell you about one of this week's sponsors, Acuity Scheduling, a Squarespace company. So what is Acuity? Well, meet the scheduling assistant that works 24-7 behind the scenes to fill your calendar and that takes hours of work off your plate. From the moment clients book with you, Acuity is there to automatically send booking confirmations with your brand and messaging, deliver text reminders, let clients reschedule on their own, and process payments so your day-to-day runs smoother, even as business gets busier. All you need to do is show up at the right time. Now, let me just pop in here for a minute and tell you that we are living in the golden age for the small business person. And I gotta say, I'm a little bit envious because when I started my business way back when, and I was a struggling young photographer and director, there was nothing online, no apps, nothing to help you kind of organize your business. And when I look into Acuity and what they can do, it's an amazing thing. And I kind of feel like I'm the old guy telling people, you know, how I used to walk to school in the snow with gravel in my lunchbox and everything. But it's true. When you're starting a business now, if you have Acuity scheduling, it's a game changer. You know, with Acuity, you never have to ask what time works for you again because clients can quickly view your real-time availability and self-book their own appointments. They can even pay online. With the ability to manage multiple locations and employees, class bookings, private sessions, add-on sales, and even recurring subscriptions, Acuity can adapt to any business. You can keep your clients prompt with text and email reminders, and you can dramatically reduce appointment no-shows with deposits or full upfront payments. Acuity is also great for data, accumulation, and storage. You can collect everything you need to know about a client as soon as they book by asking clients to fill out intake forms when scheduling. That way you can keep all of their information neat and tidy in one place. And you get notified any time a new appointment is booked. You can even tell Acuity to automatically update the calendars you already use, like Google, Outlook, iCloud, or Office 365. You can keep your entire life in sync with Acuity Scheduling. So save yourself from the day-to-day drudgery of having to keep up with your clients and your busy schedule by using Acuity Scheduling. And for listeners of this show, for a limited time, you can get 45 days of Acuity Scheduling absolutely free with no credit card required by going to acuityscheduling.com slash camera. So that's 45 days absolutely free by going to acuityscheduling.com slash camera. So there's no reason to wait. You should check it out and see what Acuity can do for you. Now, back to the show. Did you make any surprising connections between, like, did you, did you connect any dots while writing the book back to, like, some early stuff that happened to you? I think that there was just a lot of uh, undercover misogyny in my childhood, or direct misogyny. I mean, I think that what can happen if you're in a household of three daughters uh, with a mother who is very aware of the way that the world can be predatory, that there are just a lot of like, no, you can't do that, Um, or just a preventative, you better not wear that, uh, as sort of like, if you wear a short skirt, unfortunately, the world is bad and someone's going to reach up there if you don't want them to. Um, And I think there was a lot of that growing up. Um, And a lot of this book is, is looking back and being like, no, there's another way. There's just another way. And also I think that I tried really hard when writing this book to say over and over again that sorrow is not pessimism and that it has a place with a happy person, generally, an optimistic person, that they can exist at once. And I think like most people, I just grew up with everything being in some sort of a Binary. What do you mean? Like, if you're sad, it's bad. Right. If you're happy, it's strong. If you're happy, it's useful. If you're happy, it's a win. And of course it's a win if you're happy. I mean, duh, that, that's right. But, um, but sorrow has a richness to it if you can 
tolerate the discomfort. And um, I just don't think that that's what I was raised with. So I think the book is a lot of reframing and re-raising myself, or what some people would call reparenting. Right. Well, I mean, we talked about this the last time you were here, but but you and I had sort of a similar, a similar um, a gauntlet that we ran through through middle school and high school. Mm. We were both probably dealt with some some bullying and some mean kids or whatever. Right. And I was curious about that when you say reparenting. I just wonder if you sort of had to give yourself new language. Yeah. I mean, or like, I mean, my parents definitely did have sympathy for my situation. They also were powerless. Like, they were like, you can go to another school. But I was like, I felt, and I think this happens when you're bullied or if later in life you're gaslit or whatever's gonna, whatever happens between adults. You're like, I can't go anywhere because this will follow me. It's my fault. It turns into self-shame. Yeah, it's, it's who I'm. I'm the person that... I'm calling it in you just because it. of who I am. I'm the beacon for this bad thing. And, and that's not true, but that's what um, that type of degradation does to anyone. What picture comes to mind when you think of being bullied at that age? Oh, there are two things. One is like, um, like being in this sort of like public, um, what do you call it, like a common space of our school and just like walking in the way that you would jump into a pool and just being like, like every morning, like knowing that no matter what, there's something wrong with me and they're going to find it today. Really? Yeah. So that was, that was what you steeled yourself for every morning going to yeah. school. Yeah. Eventually it just kind of, I don't know. I, I was a weirdo, I think, because I would not let go. Like I probably would have had a much easier year in my seventh grade year in middle school, if I just stopped trying to be in the like popular clique, it's so funny to even talk about this now, but, but it really affected me. Um, because now when I think about it, I don't really think about the, the young girls who were just teenagers and being the animal that is the teenage girl, yeah. um, but more of why did I hang on? Why did that status matter so much to me? And what can I learn about it now in a career and an industry that is so status-obsessed? Yeah, in a did, world that's status-obsessed. Did you find parallels to that where, where as you're sort of combing through all this stuff and trying to figure out, did you find that that, that desire to hang on was still affecting your adult life as an artist, as a... Yeah, there's like a lot of imposter syndrome there. And there's also the overpowering sense that my power as an, as an individual and how that is perceived by others is created by the others. And I'm just, I'm just at the mercy of that. And all I can control is like, I just like, I'm trying to control it all the time, making sure that it is impenetrable. And, and then, like, after a while, I just realized that that's a terrible deal. It's not true. It only continues if you say, yes, that can continue. And, um, and now, I mean, yeah, I think one of the reasons why I have a happy life and I feel healthy is because the option for that type of essential humiliation or essential diminishment does not exist for me anymore. It's amazing that you would pick the career you did when you have the combination of, of what went on in school for you, that imposter syndrome yeah. that is bad enough for anybody, and specifically picking stand-up where it's the most naked art form and, and you've got to make a room full of people laugh and like you. Yeah, but all of the moments where it does work out, like, yeah, I had a terrible year in seventh grade and then, I don't know, found school to be like relatively unsatisfying until I got to college. Right. And for me, stand-up is making the bet on those great moments and getting payback for the bad ones. But did you ever get to a point where you just wanted to quit because then you wouldn't have the pressure anymore? Yeah, but the pressure would always be there because it would be like, you quit. The voice would be like, you quit. You quit. You just gave up. Like, that, that, that. I couldn't live with that. And so it's so annoying because... I don't want to do stand-up anymore. <laughs> but I really want to do stand-up. But I just, 
I just have to live with that ambivalence. There's nothing to do. It will never feel good, but it will feel really good. It's like a S&M relationship, but I like haven't exactly found the safe word. Like I'm just like, I don't know. Like it, it's, it is just pleasure and pain at once and that's it. And um, even now that my, my special just came out, I'm like, I'm never doing this again. Really? Ever. Was that the first thing? Was like, I've done it. Yeah. Uh, it's on Netflix. That can be the special of record. Yeah. Like, I mean, just this week, it's like my book made the New York Times bestseller list. My special's done really well. I'm like, okay, I think that'll do it. And then there's like truly a hundred voices inside of my head that are like, that will never happen. You know, and, and a bunch of them are like, and get ready for your, your next round being not as good. And everybody being like, well, the first thing was good, but that wasn't good. And it just starts again, but... Why are we so cutting to ourselves? I don't know. I mean, that stuff, though, at least when it pops, I'm like, you guys, guys, we don't need to talk about this right now. Yeah. You know, like, this just doesn't... Let me enjoy my week on the... Yeah. yeah. I'm sort of, I'm I'm sitting in the chair by myself is how I feel. But, But even still, I've started to in spite of myself, create new stand-up. And the jokes are really starting to come in. And I really like them. And I'm excited to do them in one way. And then the other part of me is like, you know, when like Flanagan from Largo gets in touch, where I do yeah. most of my stand-up out here in L.A., and he's like, hey, do you want to do a show on this day? I'm like, <gasps> like I, I see the calendar and the square on the calendar with that day's on fire. Like I'm just like, oh, but I'm going to do it. I think that's a conundrum of being an artist is that you can't not do it. Yeah, but I think as I get older, what scares me is the disconnect that it can occur. Like you How so? Like, all, like sometimes you see a comedian who was like really great 20 years ago and they come back and it's like they're out of touch. You know, they've like gotten too wealthy and they've gotten too isolated and it's not happening. Right. How do you, how do you maintain the, the artistic moving forward? Rather than let me go out and get a piece of what I used to have and yeah, like it's like you gotta at least for me, it's like let let the art form shift even to some extremes. Like I can really see a version of myself where I'm 70 years old and doing a straight up gardening show for PBS, and like not a lot of people see it, but I just love it. Yeah, because I, you're really into gardening at that point. Yeah, and because like there's no sh- like there's this strange sense that there's shame when things get smaller scale. But, uh, yeah, I just don't think that. So um, I hope—I don't think that there will be a world in which I don't try to please people or be funny or add levity to reality. Um, Just, like, try to lighten the load a bit. But um, I think it's the most important for me as an artist to be, like, the only constant or inevitability of my identity— is openness until death. <laughs> right. Like, open until you're terminal, and then you end. That's it. Well, that is a perfect way to describe your stand-up special, which <laughs> I, I want to say, and this is a compliment I'm paying you, I don't know that it is a stand-up special. I don't yeah. know what I'm watching when I watch Stage sure. Fright. It's part documentary. It's part confessional. It's part self-help in a weird way. Yeah. And I think that that is a brave and unique piece of art that you made. And you almost want to issue traditional forms of what is stand-up supposed to be? What is a book supposed to be? And I was curious about when you went into that, if you knew it was going to be so non-traditional and unique. Uh, I think the predominant forms of how like people make a special or write a book of essays not only feel uninteresting to me in terms of what I want to create, but I feel I feel scared of them. I feel limited and that I will fail. And you'll be compared to all those other ones? Yeah. I think I just was like, you just let, at least for me, it's like, just let the thing be the thing. Because when you say that stand-up can only look one way, you start to X out the people that don't want to do it that way, and then you lose the opportunity for art. And I thought, I want to make a special about why I exist and what it feels like right now. That exact thing comes across. It doesn't feel like a special that you're bringing to the audience, and it's the same when you bring night after night different places at all. It feels like that night that you filmed it is 
its own weird night. I'm glad you think that. I mean, the night before we filmed the dress rehearsal, uh -huh. it was, I mean, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, the worst show of my life. Really? And I cried on stage. And I apologized. And, I'd like to see that. Yeah, Me I'd too. like to see that too, except I would never like to see that because <laughs> it's just like watching yourself get punched in the face. But what, what made it so bad? It was just, for all my talk about like, I will not do a, a written out set. I can't do that. I've never done it. I was like, maybe I should try. This fucking one time, right? <laughs> Where there will also be, a, there's a camera on a dolly going back and forth and there's cameras up here and um, I'm wearing, you know, like a fancy outfit or whatever. But I tried to follow a, a set that was not natural to me. And, um, and all of the weight of the things that are more sad in there, like, like uh, jokes about divorce, yeah, just actually became sad. And it was like, I don't know. I mean, people who were there have said, like, no, no, it wasn't that bad. But it was bad, and, um, and I felt that I wasn't going to recover from it. And then and I, I, I just was like, this is the biggest mistake. We're going to have to Frankenstein this shit together in the edit room, and even if it ends up okay, I'm always going to know that it's a lie, and it's bad, and I'm bad, and... Why did I take this challenge? Why did I do this? I did oh it because I'm gosh. greedy. And this was right before yeah. the night that you filmed that became your special. Yeah, and so that happened before, and then the next day, Gillian filmed the interview with me, where I was like, I don't feel good right now. I don't feel good right now. I'm gonna, I, like, I'm gonna deny myself the chance to have fun. I don't like this. I'm in a bad mood, and I suck, really. And then, um, like, an hour before we went on, and they kept saying, like, do you want a teleprompter? Do you want a teleprompter? And I was like, no, I don't want a fucking teleprompter. And then suddenly I was like, we have to tear the set apart. We have to tear the set apart. I can't do what I did last night. I want the teleprompter, and I want keywords on the teleprompter. And it will just say, midnight mass, bar class, this. And, and, and I was like, here's the order that is natural to discuss these topics in, if I'm really being honest. We mixed up the entire set, nothing written out. I did a lot of things for the first time. Really? Mm-hmm. But we just ripped it down, and then I did it for real. And, and so the energy that you see of me coming out there and being excited yeah. is realizing— Well, now I, look, now I think back to that, and I don't see excitement. I see, like, manic energy. Yeah, manic energy. It's like, okay, I have only—we uh, filmed two shows back-to-back. So I have two chances to get this right. And when I say right, I mean it feels good. God, what you're describing is that you have to have this spontaneous thing that's new and authentic to you, and you couldn't just, okay, it's my special, I'm going to just rehearse this and get it right. And yeah. You couldn't do that. You can't rehearse. I can't rehearse. And the amazing thing is the night before goes so bad. So bad. And all of a sudden, all the things you've been talking about in your book and your special and everything, it's all probably right there again. Did you feel like you're right back in that place where it's totally vulnerable? And Yeah, I did. And, um, and there are some times when I return to that place of total vulnerability, self-doubt, and, and self-abuse. Um, and I think, th th I'm not going to get out of here. And... Um, and I pull myself out in, like, it, I was describing it to one of my friends as, like, when a mother lifts the car because the baby is under there. Yeah. And you know you've lifted, like, if it's like being like, well, the last time my baby was under the car, I lifted the car up. But, like, this time, I don't know if it's actually my baby. And I, like, lost my arms. You know, you're just like, I don't know if I'm, <laughs> I don't even know how to do this at all. I don't, I'm not even going to have the emergency instinct. I don't even know if I'm myself. It's like you're starting fresh every time. Yeah. Like you're not able to draw on your experience at all. Yeah, I, it's, it's very wild. But um, I'm sort of hoping that that calms down for me now that I've done this. Maybe. I hope for you, too. Yeah, I don't know. But I definitely remember the night after the dress rehearsal that my fiancé was like, you're right. It wasn't a great show, but you're not bad. And he was like, let's go back to the hotel, let's have an old-fashioned, and go to bed. And, like, 
And he said what is, to me, <laughs> like reveals that he does understand how I work. He was like, there is nothing better for you than a new day. So like, let's just kind of get there and stop like tearing yourself apart for what happened tonight. Because you're right, like I'm not going to lie to you, it wasn't good. But it's part of something, and that is true. But I mean, I like had my face in my hands and was crying so hard and was just like, I'm so, I remember saying out loud, I'm so ashamed of myself. I'm so ashamed of myself. And, and then the next night, I went up and I did the first show. And though, I don't know, like three minutes in, I was like, oh, okay, it's really good. It's really good. I'm really good tonight. And I remember finishing that set and going downstairs in the theater to where we had our big, like, video village or control room or yeah. whatever. And it was totally quiet down there. And I was like, oh, no, was this not good? Like, I thought, like, I think I just did a really good job. And I stood and everyone was sitting there, like, looking at the monitor. And I was like, yay! And I said that. And then they were all like, yeah! You know, and then, like, the director, Gillian, and I were like, ah! We were so excited, and like I don't know that I've ever felt more freedom than I felt after those shows were done. And the next day, I woke up, and the daffodils were—they were up uh, in downtown New York City. And I took a walk around with my sweetheart, and I had a hamburger and a beer, and I was just like, I made it alive. I so relate to that. I so relate to those trials that we set for ourselves and trying to pull something off and how much self-doubt comes from it. And then when it happens, that's a feeling of satisfaction that nothing else can touch. Somehow going through that trial and finding out that you handled it, yeah, that's the most alive feeling you can have. Yeah. I think being able to sustain my creative energy or just sustain myself as a human being trying to do this I have to be able to hang on to those moments a little bit and keep them as like just a little, a little like bloom of light, just like a little pill. Um, and there are different ways that I do that, but I think you, I also can become addicted to the rush of that like warmth that flows in uh, after there's a success or you just make it out and you know you completed the the thing. Well, maybe uh, the sobbing is the price you might have to pay yeah. for the warmth. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I mean, I hope not. But. I think it doesn't have to be this wild. You know, like, I think that um, the closer you get, or the closer one gets, or the closer I get to being the person and the artist that I want to be, and hopefully that's like a braided integration. Um, of artist and self in that, like, Georgia O'Keeffe way of, like, I live inside of my art. I make my own clothes. I am my art. My art is me. Um, that that destruction and wildness um, take a very honored backseat. And, like, in front is um, being purposeful and being, like, alive, which is different than being totally feral. Well, if you figure that out... Yeah. Tell the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, I'll see, see you in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. um, earlier in this conversation, you said that your path is to be open and be open and be open until you're terminal. Yeah. And in the special, you tell a story about a teddy bear. Yes. And then you stop and you say, I've never told that to a room full of people. And, and it's this moment of true vulnerability. And it's the most private thing. It's like, this is my teddy bear and this is what I used to do when I was discovering my body and da-da-da. So... It made me curious about if your art is yourself and if your medium is stand-up and if you want to be authentic, are there reservations or do you have to get over the idea that your art is turning your, your private self public? Yeah, well, first of all, it's a different definition for everyone what they think is private. Or, or what they think is, like, unmentionable. And I just have really, really wide margins for that in a world where the margins are pretty narrow. Was there a time when you had to sort of just, like, get over that and go, you know, this is something, this is part of 
what I want to do. You know the. Oh, I think I was just wanted to do it. Yeah, like like. More the better. It's funny. I I think that I think that I come out on the other side of that. I think I'm guarded about myself because, like you, I think I, I had a hard time growing up. You know, just dealing with that humiliation, shame, and the public, oh, yeah. and and feeling the center of attention for the attention I didn't want. Right. And I wondered if there there are actually benefits to finding out that the more open you are, the more vulnerable you are. Something different happens that is actually rewarding or beneficial. I think so. I mean, I think there was an, a part of me when I started that was like, I'll show you that you were wrong. I'll show you, and then it just started to be like, I'll show you, and then. Uh, there wasn't the that you were wrong, and it just started to feel so good to put everything out and say, the person that would seek to hurt this is deranged. The person that would seek to hurt this doesn't belong here, and the rest of the group agrees. I see. So if you, so it is a bit of vind- so sort came, of vindication, right? You came to the realization that, like, if I'm totally honest and I share my experience, it's probably going to be everybody else's experience as well. And you find more closeness. Yeah. Well, you know, when I go on stage, I'm saying like, there is a vulnerable creature up here, and I think you'll understand it because I think you are too. And I'm here to hold you, and I hope you'll hold me. And that, like, this is going to be nourishing for everyone, and I'm not like the leader of it. I'm just the other side of the infinity loop, and and you can do it with me, and you can do it with the person next to you, and the person behind you in the audience, and it's like all there. Well, that that is a beautiful way to put what you do. <laughs> it really is. And talking to you about this, it's inspiring, but it's also it just feels like I'm really sitting with another human being that that. Is open until terminal. You know yeah, what I mean? open until terminal. Maybe that should be the special the name of my next special that will make me feel yeah. ter- terrified. And then you just die at the end. Yeah, I, just, I actually have my death. <laughs> yeah, that's. Let's not make that your next part. That makes. Let's make that your special when you're like 102. Totally, like from yeah. an oxygen tank. Yeah. I'm like. I was walking down the street the other day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming back on. Thanks, Sam. And thank you for writing your book. Hey, thanks for reading it. You're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) Nice to see you. Yeah. Hey, folks, that's our show. I love having guests back on Off Camera because it's a chance to revisit their career, but it's also a neat opportunity to have a conversation with somebody who I've already really gotten to know. And in the case of Jenny Slate, I can happily say she's become a friend and she is someone that I admire and I'm inspired by. And I love checking in with her and sort of following how her career is progressing. I was so surprised reading her book and seeing her stand-up special about how much turmoil she'd gone through over the last couple of years because she maintained such a brave face. But I guess there's a lesson there that no matter what we're going through, the outside never quite matches the inside. And I guess whenever you meet an artist, you can count on the fact that there's always growth and questions and searching and conflict going on. Because if we're not having that experience, are we really living? Are we really examining our lives? And Jenny is just a great example of a life well-examined. And if you haven't read her book yet, or seen her stand-up special, or seen any of the amazing films she's done in the past, I highly suggest you do all those things. You can find her comedy special, Stage Fright, on Netflix, and you can find her book, Little Weirds, wherever books are sold, which is pretty much just Amazon these days, right? So check that out. And after you're done checking that out, go check out offcamera.com. As you know, we're a podcast, but we're also a television show. We're on DirecTV's Audience Network every week with new episodes airing Mondays at 9 p.m. Now, if you don't have DirecTV, you can also find access to our entire archive of shows. That's over 200 shows, by the way, which is crazy to even say that, by visiting offcamera.com and getting our television subscription package. For only $4.99 a month, you can have unlimited access to every show we've made to watch on any device as many times as you like. It's a great way to take a deep dive into the show, and it's also a great way to support the show. So if you haven't seen what you've been listening to, I urge you to check that out. 
You can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter. And I am Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. If you follow me on Instagram, you can see all the behind-the-scenes photographs from this show, as well as the portraits I take of each guest that comes on. And if you follow me on Twitter, you can get occasional witticisms and silly retweets. I'll try to do better on Twitter. So follow me there, too, and give me a reason to uh, engage with that platform more. You can also send me an email. I am sam at offcamera.com. I love hearing about people's creative paths and their careers, and uh, I'm available for bad advice if you need some. But if you want to talk about the show and you want to suggest a guest or share the love for Off Camera, the best way to do that is through social media because that helps more people find out about us and hopefully it keeps us doing this show for a good long time. So if you love what we're doing, please tell the world about it. We'd really appreciate it. I want to thank everyone that helps on the show. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. They work long hours to make this show come to you every week and we really appreciate them. And I really appreciate you tuning in each week. That's it for me. I'll see you next time off camera.